Hello, gang, and welcome to the next episode of Pulp Today. I have no idea what number it is. Mm. And this won't help. Um, sorry I didn't uh, shave for you some days. It's just not going to happen. But I did put on a tie, so, you know, you should appreciate that. This is going to be very important to the people listening on uh, iTunes, what I was wearing and uh, whether I shaved or not. Today we're going to talk about Damon Runyon and also about language and American slang. My father was born in 1924, and uh, when I started uh, looking at this collection of Damon Runyon stories I have, or something to read, I read the introduction, and the introduction makes a big deal out of the slang and out of the idea that there's a great deal of art to Runyon's writing and his depiction of the Times Square Broadway characters of New York and Brooklyn of the Prohibition era period, and uh, the idea that it's a fanciful, invented language. And there's a chicken and the egg here thing here that's very hard to parse. Uh, I don't know that anyone can really parse it, because I grew up with someone that spoke like a character in a Damon Runyon short story. It's it's impossible to know if Runyon was uh, was reflecting or creating the language the characters speak in his stories. I think it's a little of both, but I would give a slight edge to reflecting because I've met too many old timers who talk like that. Again, including my own father. Like I don't know how much Damon Runyon William Burroughs read, but. That Times Square pre-World War II voice, boy, it's still there in the 1950s. It's there in my dad's writing. It's there in Burroughs. It's there in, boy, almost anyone who does lower depths Manhattan, New York, five boroughs writing. And, you know, now nowadays, if anyone knows anything about Damon Runyon, what they know is that he inspired the musical Guys and Dolls. But I would say that's almost the least of his contributions to pop culture, as nice as the songs are. I want to read uh, a bit from the first story in this book, which is called Breach of Promise, and it, it gives a pretty great, uh, some examples of the slang and the speech and the sound, and, you know, and not for nothing, as my people say. He was a hell of a storyteller, and his stories are always incredibly entertaining. Breach of Promise. One day, a certain party by the name of Judge Goldfaber, who is a lawyer by trade, sends word to me that he wishes me to call on him at his office in Lower Broadway. And while ordinarily I do not care for any part of lawyers, it happens that Judge Goldfaber is a friend of mine. So I go to see him. Of course, Judge Goldfaber is not a judge, and never is a judge, and he is 100 to 1 in my line against ever being a judge. But he is called judge because it pleases him, and everybody always wishes to please Judge Goldfaber, as he is one of the most surest-footed lawyers in this town and beats more tough beefs for different citizens than seems possible. He is a wonderful hand for keeping citizens from getting into the sneezer and better than Houdini when it comes from getting them out of the sneezer after they are in. Personally, I have never any use for the professional services of Judge Goldfaber, as I am a law-abiding citizen at all times and am greatly opposed to guys what violate the law. 
but I know the judge from around and about for many years. I know him from, from around and about the nightclubs and other deadfalls, for Judge Goldfaber is such a guy as loves to mingle with the public in these spots, as he picks up much law business there, and sometimes a nice doll. Well, when I call on Judge Goldfaber, he takes me into his private office and wishes to know if I can think of a couple of deserving guys who are out of employment and who will like a job of work. And if so, Judge Goldfaber says, he can offer them a first-class position. Of course, Judge Goldfaber says, it is not steady employment, and it in fact is nothing but piecework. But the parties must be extremely reliable parties who can be depended on in a pinch. This is out-of-town work that requires tact and, he says, some nerve. Well, I am about to tell Judge Goldfaber that I am no employment agent and go on about my business because I can tell from the way he says the parties must be parties who can be depended on in a pinch, that a pinch is apt to come up on the job any minute, and I do not care to steer any friends of mine against a pinch. But as I get up to go, I look out of Judge Goldfarber's window, and I see Brooklyn in the distance beyond the river, and seeing Brooklyn, I get to thinking of certain parties over there that I figure must be suffering terribly from the unemployment situation. I get to thinking of Harry the Horse and Spanish John and Little Isidore, and the reason I figure they must be suffering from the unemployment situation is because if nobody is working and making any money, then there is no one for them to rob. And if there is no one for them to rob, Harry the Horse and Spanish John and Little Isidore are just naturally bound to be feeling the depression keenly. Anyway, I finally mention the names of these parties to Judge Goldfaber, and furthermore, I speak well of the reliability in a pinch and of their nerve, and I cannot conscientiously recommend their tact, and Judge Goldfaber is greatly delighted, as he often hears of Harry the Horse and Spanish John and Little Isidore. He asked me for their addresses, but of course nobody knows exactly where Harry the Horse and Spanish John and Little Isidore live, because they do not live anywhere in particular. However, I tell him about a certain spot in Clinton Street where he may be able to get track of them, and then I leave Judge Goldfaber for fear he may wish me to take word to these parties, and if there is anybody in this whole world I will not care to take word to or to have any truck with in any manner, shape, or form, it is Harry the Horse and Spanish John and Little Isidore. Well, I do not hear anything more of the matter for several weeks, but one evening when I am in Mindy's restaurant on Broadway enjoying a little cold borscht, which is a most refreshing matter in hot weather, such as is going on at the time, who bobs up but Harry the Horse and Spanish John and Little Isidore. And I am so surprised to see them that some of my cold borscht goes down the wrong way, and I almost choke to death. However, they seem quite friendly, and in fact, Harry the Horse pounds me on the back to keep me from choking, and while he pounds so hard that he almost caves in my spine, I consider it a most courteous action, and when I am able to talk again, I say to him as follows. Well, Harry, I say, it is a privilege and pleasure to see you again, and I hope and trust you will all join me in some nice cold borscht, which you will find very nice indeed. No, Harry says, we do not care for any cold borscht. We are looking for Judge Goldfaber. Do you see Judge Goldfaber round and about lately? Well, the idea of Harry the Horse and Spanish John and Little Isidore looking for Judge Goldfaber sounds something alarming to me, and I figure maybe the job Judge Goldfaber give them turns out bad, and they wish to take Judge Goldfaber apart, but the next minute Harry says to me like this, By the way, he says, we wish to thank you for the job of work you throw our way. Maybe someday we will be able to do as much for you. It is a most interesting job, Harry says. And while you were snuffing your cold borscht, 
I will give you the details so you will understand why we wish to see Judge Goldfaber. It turns out, Harry the Horse says, that the job is not for Judge Goldfaber personally, but for a client of his, who is this client but Mr. Jabez Tuesday, the rich millionaire who owns the Tuesday string of one-arm joints where many citizens go for food and wait on themselves. Judge Goldfaber comes to see us in Brooklyn in person and sends me to see Mr. Jabez Tuesday with a letter of introduction so Mr. Jabez Tuesday can explain what he wishes me to do because Judge Goldfaber is too smart a guy to be explaining such matters to me himself. In fact, for all I know, maybe Judge Goldfaber is not aware of what Mr. Jabez Tuesday wishes me to do, although I am willing to lay a little six to five that Judge Goldfaber does not think Mr. Jabez Tuesday wishes to hire me as a cashier in one of his one-arm joints. Anyway, I go to see Mr. Tuesday at a Fifth Avenue hotel, where he makes his home, and where he has a very swell layout of rooms, and I am by no means impressed with Mr. Tuesday, as he hems and haws quite a bit before he tells me the nature of the employment he has in mind for me. He is a little guy, somewhat dried out, with a bald head and a small mauser on his upper lip, and he wears specs and seems somewhat nervous. Well, it takes him some time to get down to cases and tell me what is eating him and what he wishes to do, and then it all sounds very simple indeed, and in fact it sounds so simple I think Mr. Jabez Tuesday is a little daffy when he tells me he will give me 10 G's for the job. What Mr. Tuesday wishes for me to do is get some letters that he personally writes to a doll by the name of Miss Amelia Bodkin, who lives in a house just outside Tarrytown. Because it seems that Mr. Tuesday makes certain cracks in these letters that he is now sorry for, such as speaking of love and marriage and one thing and another to Miss Amelia Bodkin, and he is afraid she is going to sue him for breach of promise. Such an idea will be very embarrassing to me, Mr. Jabez Tuesday says, as I am about to marry a party who is a member of one of the most high-toned families in this country. It is true, Mr. Tuesday says, that the Scarwater family does not have as much money now as formerly, but there is no doubt about it being very, very high-toned, and my fiance, Miss Valerie Scarwater, is one of the high-tonedest of them all. In fact, she is so high-toned that the chances are she will be very huffy about anybody suing me for breach of promise and cancel everything. Well, I ask Mr. Tuesday what a breach of promise is, and he explains to me that it is when somebody promises to do something and fails to do this something, although of course we have a different name for a proposition of this nature in Brooklyn, and we deal with it accordingly. The music of my peoples. I think that gives you a pretty good taste, and... I, I recommend reading Runyon. The uh, you probably you heard it there. The use of overly formal language, the uh, repetition, uh, which I've actually seen compared to Homer. It's always rosy fingers, finger dawn, and it's always Mr. Jabez Tuesday. And the failure to use common contractions, the fact that verbs are almost always in the present tense. It's a, it's a definite style, and I think you can see its influence into the present day. Uh, I think the Coen brothers still kind of lean on this every once in a while, especially when they write period stuff. It shows up in my own work in the uh, Betty Page comic books, and I have to say that growing up with my father, beyond even reading Damon Runyon, Growing up with my father prepared me to write those comics and write in a 1950s argot, even though, again, this is this is talk from the, the 20s and 30s, but people were still talking that way in New York in the 50s. I think there's, there's plenty of evidence for that, particularly a certain kind of uh, 
Broadway slash Times Square character. Uh, and again, even character, calling people citizen, uh, calling any kind of remark a crack, it's a lively language. And the, the, the last thing that I'll say, at least as far as uh, how, it, how it's affected me, when you write period material particularly, I never understand when it's shot through with lame present day uh, dialogue and shot through with anachronisms. To me, the entire joy of writing about a time and a place is speaking in the language of that time and place. And I, uh, I think it was in the first episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, someone says, let's do lunch. I don't know why you would you would write that when you there are a million colorful things, colorful ways that could have been expressed in the time period. And using those expressions and using that language is such a joy. And uh, while the lingering, the long-term effects of uh, growing up with this may occasionally uh, make me sound like a crazy person to people born in the latter half of the 20th or early 21st century, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So, read Damon Runyon. Mm. For that matter, read Michael Avalone. And have a good one. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.